hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. How many times have we woken up and learned that there's been yet another data breach at some organization? The latest high-profile one was Marriott, but I'm not picking on them because it's happened to Facebook, it's happened to Google, it's happened to the National Republican Committee, and even the General Accounting Office for the government. And I could go on and on. I hate to say it, but it's the world we live in. We share our information with others and others get compromised, but we don't need to help them, the hackers. We don't need to help them once they have our information. We can help ourselves to some degree by not having terrible passwords. This time of year, everyone's going to start thinking about all the New Year's resolutions they can make and eh, not keep. So here's an easy one that you can put on your list. And it won't be so hard to keep. Don't use lame passwords. I bring this up because Splash Data just released their list of worst passwords for the year. Top of the list was one, two, three, four, five, six. And then second on the list was my personal favorite, password, followed by one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Well, and you get the idea. Sounds ridiculous, right? But Splash analyzed more than 5 million passwords that were leaked on the internet, and it found that more than 3% of the people have used the one, two, three, four, five, six password. And at least 10% of the people used one of the top 25 worst passwords on their list. Make a resolution to use strong passwords in the coming year. Change your password on your bank accounts, your credit cards, and your brokerage accounts on a regular basis. As a side note, Kanye West's password of 0000000, the one the whole world saw him use to unlock his phone while meeting with President Trump, well, that didn't make the top 25. Welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman. So glad you could join me today. If you're a contrarian investor, you might be feeling pretty good right now. Because over the weekend, the New York Times, the Sunday edition, the New York Times had not one, but two articles on how the market was melting down. One was actually in the style section, believe it or not, had a big graphic on this tidal wave crashing over and the headline was assume crash position. And then the other was on the front page with the moniker, the best place to put your money your mattress. Now, it's been my experience that when you start seeing mainstream publications, mainstream media talking about putting your money under your mattress, we're probably close to a bottom. It would be better for them to write this sort of stuff when the markets are at all-time highs so we can take a little off the table. But now, it's usually at the bottoms. Another good sign for you contrarians out there, which I am one. 
is the latest AAII numbers. That's the American Association of Individual Investors. And they do the sentiment poll. And last week, it showed a plunge in the number of people who are optimists. The bullish camp came in at 21%, while the bear camp moved up to 49%. At extremes, these polls are decent indicators. I call them the George Costanda indicators because you do the opposite. With the AAII poll, I usually look for a 2Xer, meaning when there are twice as many on one side than on the other, it's time to join the smaller camp. In this latest poll, you do have twice as many people who are negative than those who are optimists. You haven't seen the same thing yet in the investors' intelligence numbers, which is another survey, but you have seen a whole bunch of selling going on. According to Lipper, investors pulled a record $46 billion from mutual and ETF funds, with most of, its, uh, most of it finding its way into money markets, which is kind of interesting to me, interesting on another level, because a lot of investors say, I'll just buy a low-cost index fund and I'll hold on to it forever and ride the ups and downs. But obviously, that's not the case. They're trying to time the market. And we'll talk about that some other time on some other show. So we have money piling into money markets. Money markets aren't so bad. Most are probably yielding more than the S&P right now. So having a little extra cash probably won't hurt you. This extra cash in money markets, along with the $2.5 trillion sitting on corporate balance sheets, the money that can be used for stock buybacks, represents fuel for a potential fire. I'm still waiting for the downside momentum to be broken. And that's going to take at least one, if not two days, where the upside upside buying volume outpaces the downside by 10 to 1. The Fed meets this week, and that just might be the catalyst that the market needs, especially if there's any softening in interest rate expectations going forward. I think the Fed is going to be the dominant force in the markets this coming year, and I'll address that in a few weeks when I lay out my thoughts in uh, the annual outlook. Next week is Christmas, and the week after is New Year's. Both fall on a Tuesday, so we'll be taking a break from doing the show And then we'll start back up again on January 9th. Now, given the extreme volatility and the market market gyrations that we've seen going on here, I think it's important that we separate the wheat from the chaff. I know it's hard to tell the difference sometimes, but let's look at a few indicators that may help us. First, first is the S&P earnings per share growth expectations. Earnings are still expected to grow at nearly 10%. Clearly, the 20% growth that we've had wasn't sustainable. The risk is that the growth decelerates further than the 10% because of the ongoing trade war or a further strengthening of the U.S. dollar. But as long as earnings don't contract, meaning they go negative, I think stock prices should recover. Second, second is the yield curve. Investors have become infatuated with it. And this is what I see. 
I talked about the yield curve last week, but in case you missed it, we're going to talk about it. That's when we're talking about the long rates are lower than short-term rates. When this happens, it's usually been a good indicator that a recession is down the road. We've seen an inversion in the five-year to two-year rates and the five-year to three-year rates. And I'm paying attention to it. I, I, I am. But we haven't seen the inversion in the longer-term comparisons like the 10-year treasury to the two-year treasury. Historically, the most significant yield curve signals for the stock market is when you see all the different yield curve slopes inverted. And we don't have that. It's important to know that typically the 10-year to the two-year comparison, that inversion occurs before stock market peaks. According to FactSec, going back to the mid-60s, mid-1960s, there's only been one time, one time when the market peaked prior to yield, uh, the yield curve inverting, and that was 1973. In other words, the yield curve inversion is a leading indicator. And once the curve inverts, it signals a high point for stocks is close at hand. How close? Well, the market tops on average 248 days after inversion, but the median is 77 days. So there's a wide disparity there. Nothing you can really count on. And that's according to the bank credit analysts. Nonetheless, the implication is, is that the market hasn't peaked. Third, the third thing I'll mention is that a whole bunch of economic indicators have seemingly bottomed. That's what it looks like to me. Emerging market currencies, the CRB raw industrials commodity index, and the semi-equipment stocks are all suggesting to me that the worst is over and global trade will likely resume in the coming months. And lastly, it seems inflation is slowing down. And that's courtesy to a fall in oil prices. If oil stays here for a while, the inflation rate will come down. And that's pretty significant. And that's significant because it could give the Fed reason to reconsider the pace of interest rate hikes. And the market would love that. To sum this up, you still have S&P earnings expanding, not contracting. You have the lack of a yield curve inversion for the 2 to 10 spread. And a trough in a number of economically sensitive indicators and the potential for a temporary head uh, Fed hike pause in March. This is all telling me that the equity bull market is not over and new highs are ahead of us. Now, there's a difference between my outlook and my investment strategy. Even though I see good things in front of us, I'm not going to go all in on a market call. As I pointed out, the market has peaked after uh, the market has peaked after the inversion of the yield curve every time except for one, and this could be number two. December has historically been a really good month. Well, so far, not so much. I'm always looking at the fundamentals, and I see a bunch of stocks, a bunch of really good companies selling at inexpensive prices. Last week, I gave you what I think are two of the highest quality stocks that are trading at prices I'd like to own them at. 
And today, I'll give you a couple of more ideas that you can research on your own and see if they make sense for your portfolio. But first, we need to step away, take a short break, and we'll be right back. You've worked hard, you've saved and invested. Now you want to make sure all your hard work pays off. Now's the time to start planning for that future. Hi, this is Eric Whiteman of the XML Financial Group. No two people have the same goals and values. We can help you craft a framework for making a lifetime of smart financial decisions that's right for you. Now's the time to get the advice you deserve. Call us at 301-770-5234. Well, thank you and welcome back to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. So glad you could join me today. Don't forget to visit us at XMLFG.com. That's our website, XMLFG.com. That's where you can learn more about us. And if you're looking for some assistance with your financial planning and investing, or you're thinking about making a change in the new year, well, we'd love to talk to you. We have offices in Rockville, Maryland, and and Tyson's Corner, Virginia. And of course, we work with clients all over the country. Don't be shy. We'd love to hear from you. The phone number is 571-261-7670. Or you can email me at podcast, which is plural, podcast at xmlfg.com. We have some pretty exciting things coming up this year, and we'll be announcing some of those over the next couple of months. As I mentioned We're going to be taking a break from the show for the next two weeks, and we'll be back on January 9th. When we get back, we'll start laying out what we see for the new year in our annual outlook. So stay tuned for more details on that. No one loves the semiconductors. You know, not too long ago, they were the market darlings. The must-have NVIDIA, symbol NVDA. NVIDIA was going to make a fortune because they were the preferred chip for the crypto miners and the gamers. Micron, symbol MU, that was another favorite. It seems to me that some of these stocks have gotten so hammered that they're actually overdone. I will say that my conviction level is not as high as it is in in other areas, and I'm not willing to go diving into something like NVIDIA or Micron, but I am willing to look at something like Intel symbol INTC. I think Intel has superior cost advantages compared to those other other competitors through its design and manufacturing process. Their in-house capability supports a streamlined supply chain, meaning shorter time to market and the ability to scale more rapidly. Keep in mind that semiconductor manufacturing is capital intensive and thus requires methodical planning and execution to keep the cost per chip at a reasonable level. Intel was the PC powerhouse, right? But PCs aren't the high growth market that they once were. So Intel has concentrated the business on providing the most powerful and energy efficient chips to anything that is, quote, smart and connected. Now, 
that we're all smart and connected, meaning that we're using more smartphones and tablets, we rely more on cloud computing and Intel provides a good deal of chips for the servers in this area. AI, artificial intelligence, is another area that Intel is trying to compete in, and that's why they've built a broad portfolio in this area through acquisition of folks like Altera, uh, Mobileye for computer vision chips that are used in cars, uh, Nirvana neural processors, Mavidius, the video processors. It's projected that by 2021, that the AI market will be $20 billion. And I think that Intel will be a direct beneficiary of it. So these stocks have gone from high-flying darlings to the lowest of the low. They probably got too high, but now I think they probably have gotten too low. With that said, I want to own what I consider the best here for a couple of reasons. First, you you always want to own the best, right? Number two, I think it's very likely that the semiconductor sales will continue to decelerate for the next three to six months. And number three, China. 80% of Intel's sales are foreign and we're in a trade war. The bottom line is, is that I think we've just gotten too far oversold and we're due for a comeback. With Intel, I'm not worried if I'm wrong because they have a great balance sheet. They aren't just going to crumble. They're trading inexpensively, and earnings are still expected to grow next year. As a matter of fact, analysts have been raising their earnings expectations for Intel over the last couple of months. Three months ago, the average expectation was for them to earn $4.26 a share for the full year 2019, and it's been raised up to $4.57. So a pretty big hike over the last three months. If that's right, then they're trading at about 10 times next year's earnings and and they're paying a 2.5% dividend while I wait. I would suspect that Intel is a mid to high single digit earner over the long term. But add in that dividend, it actually ends up being a, a decent total return story. Not to mention that any increase in multiple or what people are willing to pay for a dollar of Intel's earnings could boost total return even higher. Now, these aren't core holdings. They're cyclical stocks. They go through booms and busts. So you don't buy them and hold on to them forever. So I think I'd like Intel, symbol INTC, at where it's trading at now, which is around $48. Okay, we've run out of time, but I mentioned a couple of others last week that I think are real interesting. So you might want to go back and listen to last week's show if you miss it. I hope you all have a great holiday season. Be safe. Enjoy. We'll be back in the new year on the 9th. And until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them. Okay, you've listened to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well, 
They're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.